I love pastoring this church. It's a great joy. There are many wonderful things about pastoring, visiting with members, preparing sermons, rejoicing in times of happiness, celebrating salvation, celebrating baptisms, planting churches. And I love just the weekly Friday gathering when we get to come together and worship God together. Pastoring is wonderful, but pastoring is also difficult. There are cancer threats and treatments. Walking alongside those who are depressed and anxious, helping those who've fallen into temptation and sin, hugging a brother or a sister trapped in sin and facing the consequences is agonizing for everyone. In our member meeting tonight, we'll talk about both wonderful things and difficult things. Our meetings are celebrations, but they're also a time for mourning, a time to laugh, and a time to lament. Pastoring is wonderfully difficult. The Christian life is wonderful and difficult. But in all this, there's one thing that stands out to me as the most difficult part of ministry and really in the Christian life in general, the most difficult and challenging task I have is to have a fervent and vibrant prayer life. My most challenging task is to pray. I'm embarrassed to say this, really, but prayer is hard for me. And as I assess my life as pastor, I think this has been my biggest shortcoming. I've not prayed as I should. I've not prayed for you as I should. And I need to ask your forgiveness. Forgive me. Forgive me for not praying as I should. Forgive me for not praying for you as I should. This is important because prayer is not just an add-on to the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Prayer is not just part of pastoral ministry. It is the pastoral ministry. Prayer is not preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. Perhaps this is why Jesus sweat drops of blood, not in a courtroom, not while being betrayed, and not while being nailed to the cross even, but during prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Prayer is the battle. This is what we were made for. This is what we were created for, to be in fellowship with God to be in communion with Him. And yet, this is hard. Well, maybe some of you can relate to me. The great Martin Lloyd-Jones said, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Maybe I'm not alone in my failure. How's your prayer life? Are you encouraged by it? In reality, it's easier for me to teach on prayer than to pray. It's easier for me to preach than to pray. It's easier serving or discipling or giving. All those are easier than praying. It often doesn't feel like I'm accomplishing anything when I pray. When I do it, at times it feels futile. I start praying, and then 20 seconds in, out of nowhere, worries start popping into my head. 
My to-do list starts coming up in my mind. And then I start thinking about what I'm going to eat for lunch. Is it the pancit or the ugali? I can't decide. I start over and over and over again. I feel like a failure. Has this happened to you? C.S. Lewis called this the kingdom of noise. We try to be quiet, but we can't. And with technology at our fingertips these days, being quiet feels impossible. We struggle to even get out of bed in the morning without first looking at our phones. We're uncomfortable with silence. A praying life seems impossible. I mean, sometimes it just feels like we're talking to ourselves, just talking into the air. It feels a bit crazy. It's like the man or the woman walking down the street, just speaking at the top of their lungs into the air. You look at them and they look crazy. Maybe you get closer and you see an earpiece and they're actually on the phone, but it looks strange, doesn't it? It feels strange to talk to yourself. And at times in our prayer lives, this is what it feels like we're doing. Praying is difficult. So Redeemer Church, how are your prayers? For the next three weeks, we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. Today, we're going to look really just at the first phrase of what's called the Lord's Prayer, and we'll look at the couple verses before that in preface to the actual prayer. But before we jump in, let me just make three preliminary statements about Jesus' teaching on prayer here. First, Matthew jumps right into this prayer, but in the Gospel of Luke, we get the context. Jesus had been praying, and the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. This is Jesus' response. It's a, a model prayer, a pattern prayer. Jesus says, pray like this. Jesus doesn't tell us everything there is to know about prayer in these verses, but he gives us some guardrails to hang our prayers on. It's an outline of sorts. Now, second, this is a prayer Jesus could never have prayed for himself. One of the petitions is for forgiveness of sins. Jesus never prayed this. He lived a perfect life and never sinned. He was and is God in the flesh, the eternal Son of God. It's been suggested that instead of calling this prayer the Lord's Prayer, it would have been better over the centuries to label it the Disciples' Prayer. This is how we as disciples of Jesus should pray. It's for us. Well, third, these words need to pierce our hearts. I realize many of these words are familiar to you. Sports teams pray them on a regular basis, not necessarily because they internalize them or even know God, but as a good luck charm. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and we'd recite it all the time, but I never knew what it meant. I knew the words in my mind, but not in my heart. But this is not a rote prayer that we say to check off prayer on our to-do list. It doesn't earn us points with God or merit us grace. We don't memorize it to gain favor with God. We need to know what it means. Who are we talking to? What are we saying when we talk to him? My prayer is that this prayer and these teachings would revolutionize our prayer lives. My first pastor, Tommy Nelson, says that this is the Psalm 23 of the New Testament. It's the most intimate prayer. 
This is what Jesus says about talking to the Father. And here's the main point today, super simple and right out of verse 9. Here's the, the main point. Redeemer Church, pray to our Father in heaven. That's it. If you're taking notes, main point of the text, pray to our Father in heaven. A simple yet most difficult charge to each of us. What does it mean to pray to the Father? For some of us, it might take convincing that we have a Father in heaven. Modern science textbooks, even here in the UAE, if you're a teenager or a youth, even your textbooks in this country have science teaching that we came from nothing and will go to nothing, that we've descended from apes and are all cosmic orphans. But here, Jesus introduces us to our Father in heaven. God is not a force of nature. When we pray, we're not talking to the universe. He's not a machine or mechanical being. God is not some soulless, impersonal force. We pray to God our Father. And in a sense, this sums up our entire Christian life. We can do this because we're his children, adopted by God through the death of his son, Jesus. Now, the author of Hebrews says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Jesus himself said in the gospel of John that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, on our own, we were dead in our sins and separated from God. But Christian friends, we call God Father because the death of Jesus reconciles us to God by faith. Our prayer is to the Father, through the Son, but it's also in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 says that through Jesus, we have access to the Father by one Spirit. Romans 8 says the Spirit helps us pray. Christian prayer is Trinitarian. We pray to the Father on the basis of the Son's saving work and through his intercession now in the power and the wisdom of the Spirit. This is mind-blowing. Stop for a minute just to consider this reality. Before you ask God for anything, before you bring your list of prayers and petitions and lists of needs and wants and desires, before you ask for your daily bread, realize, understand that these astounding cosmic realities are taking place. I mean, it's astonishing to remember that whether or not in the moment we're consciously aware of it, God is our Father in heaven, and he is surrounded by innumerable angels and saints who have gone before us. And seated there at the right hand of God the Father is Jesus, the crucified one, the risen one, the exalted one, the living one who holds in his hands the keys to death and Hades, who holds within him the keys to life. And God our Father is worshipped and adored by those angels who cry out, holy, holy, holy. And there in the throne room in heaven, it reverberates with ceaseless praise around the clock every second of every day. And so when you pray, when I pray, when we come before this God in prayer, we're joining that chorus. We're joining the chorus of praise and adoration and confession and thanksgiving and petition that's happening every second of every day all throughout the earth and throughout the heavens. 
Oh, friends, we have a Father in heaven. And the first step to a healthy prayer life is to understand that. It's to understand your relationship with God. 24 tips to a better prayer life isn't going to help you if you don't know God as your Father. So, friend, how do you talk to God in prayer? What do your prayers sound like? When you pray, are you conscious of whom you're speaking with? Are you talking to God as Father? Well, my children, they talk to me about anything and everything. They talk to me about what happened at school. They ask me for things. They ask questions. They talk about what's upset them or what's made them happy. It's not a production. And if it starts to sound like a production, something like, oh, thou dearest, most amazing, bestest daddy in the whole wide world, then I know something is up. I know they have something in mind that they're trying to get from me. Maybe they want to have ice cream as their dinner. Maybe they want me to buy them something. Now, author Paul Miller in his great book, A Praying Life, says prayer is like having dinner with close friends or family. It's all about a relationship. It's like family mealtime when you're all gathered together around the table. You just talk to each other. I think the reason people struggle praying is because they're focusing so much on praying and not enough focus on God. It's like thinking about the meaning of each individual word before saying it at the dinner table. No one does that. I mean, you think about that person and you just talk to them. To improve your prayer life, you don't think more about prayer. You think more about God. You want to improve your prayer life? Stop thinking about prayer. Think more about our Father. Well, some of you remember my first trip to India years ago. I've been many times since. But I'll always remember my first road trip from the Lucknow Airport with my friend Shaker. My first thought was, I can't believe anyone complains about the traffic here in Dubai. It's nothing compared to incredible India. Taxis, motorcycles, bicycles, people, cars, animals, all sharing one place together as one big happy family. And Shaker was a superhero. He was making crazy moves. At one point, I thought he was going to drive up the side of the building like a ninja hero warrior. But the scariest moment happened right in the middle of the highway. He was swerving around cars, making his way through traffic, and then all of a sudden, Shaker just slammed on his brakes, and right there in front of us, in the middle of the highway, what felt like centimeters from my face was a big, fat, black, hairy, scary cow just staring me in the face. And he had a bit of a smile on his face as if he was welcoming me to India for the first time. It's very nice of him. But what I saw in front of me, what I saw illustrated in front of me, was that the key to driving is not thinking about driving. It's not thinking about the gear shift or the steering wheel. It's not thinking about how the engine is working. The key is not thinking about how the car is moving. The key is to concentrate on the road and to avoid other cars, other people, cows, What's the same with prayer? If you just look at prayer and the theories floating around prayer, you obsess over the 50 ways guaranteed to improve your prayers. You get all the right apps on your phone to remind you how to pray and when to pray. If that's all you do, eventually you're going to get stuck. 
Instead of fixating on those things, look at God. He's the road. Concentrate on Him. The key to improving our prayer life is not trying to improve our prayer life. The key to our prayer life is looking to who God is. And Jesus is telling us to know God as our Father. Now, Father comes from the Aramaic word Abba. This is a big deal. No Jew directly addressed God as Father. This would have startled Jesus' listeners. God was sovereign, but he was a distant God. The Jews would even come up with ways to avoid saying the name of God out of reverence or even fear. And yet Jesus uses the most personal name possible. I mean, when you meet a president of a country, you'd say Mr. or Mrs. President. If you meet with a ruler, you'd say his or her highness. And you see how radical this is. Jesus says he's father. A father loves it when their children come to them anytime. To learn to pray is to learn to be a child. Child loves talking to their dad. Children aren't shy to ask their father for things over and over again. Nothing stops a child from running into their father's arms to show him a toy or ask a question. Well, children have such great faith when they talk to their parents, don't they? They assume unhindered access. They don't think about scheduling appointments to have a meeting with their father. A childlike faith keeps asking, keeps waiting, keeps asking, and keeps waiting, holding out hope that they'll receive an answer. The Gentiles had it backwards. That's why Jesus says back in verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. The Gentiles were trying to earn something from God by their prayers. They thought the more they say, the more likely they'll be heard. They're just uttering empty phrases that don't mean anything in their hearts. But God is not impressed by our prayer statistics, how many words we say, how long we pray. It's not about quantity of time. It's about quality of relationship. Is it personal? We don't pray as the hypocrites do to earn praise from God. We don't pray as the Gentiles do to earn something from God. We pray in a distinctly Christian way out of a love relationship with our Father. Our hearts and minds are involved in what we're saying. We don't heap up empty phrases. Why? Well, verse 8, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God is not ignorant. He's a loving Father who loves His children and knows their needs. Now, does this mean that the shorter the prayers, the better? Now, that sounds pretty good to many of us, doesn't it? Should we have short prayer contests? Hey, pastor, I prayed this morning for seven seconds, short and sweet. Is that what Jesus means here? Well, no, this is not advocating for short prayer. There's no award for shortest devotional times. Jesus is talking about meaningful prayers. Jesus prayed long and all night on occasions. He even repeated prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is not forbidding repetition in prayer. We can pray the same psalms regularly. I've been praying Psalm 4 just about every morning in my own devotional times. 
We're not after meaningless repetition, but meaningful communion. Well, prayer is also not about emptying our minds. It's not a relaxation technique to lower our blood pressure. Prayer is the opposite, actually. Prayer is the filling of our minds with the truth about who God is. I wonder if your prayers are distinctly Christian prayers. I wonder how you're approaching God. There are really two main ways we can approach God when we come to prayer. Pastor Tim Keller describes a difference, like the difference between a border in your house and a son living in your house. As a border, someone renting a room, you have to pay rent, follow certain rules. There are also rules for the landlord to take care of maintenance. You can have a good relationship, but the interchange is mechanical. It's one of goods and services. It's a business relationship. A son doesn't live as a boarder, but as a child. In the business relationship, you have to perform. In this case, you pay rent, you behave, you do those things in order to be accepted. But in the family relationship, you're already accepted. You're accepted, therefore you perform. You're already accepted. Those are two completely different ways of doing things. And Jesus says you can approach God either on a business basis or a family basis. Now, here's an example. You've worked hard for two weeks or a month in your job during that pay period, and then your boss gives you your paycheck at the end of the month. When you've gotten that paycheck, have you ever said, oh, wow, behold, this miraculous thing I hold in my hands, my paycheck. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that I hold this thing in my hands. No, no employee has ever said such a thing. In your heart, you may say, that's right. I I deserve this. I worked hard for this. I, I earned it. If there's no beholding of miraculous work in your life when God does something good for you, that means you're a border. You're feeling like you're just getting what you deserve. Keller says, here's how you know whether you're a Christian or not. What happens when your prayers aren't answered? If you're angry, you say, I've done everything for you, God. In a sense, you've paid your rent. You've behaved a certain way. You've done certain things. You say to God, I deserve this. If you say that, you're a boarder and not a child. You have a business relationship with God. God, you haven't held up your part of the deal. You're coming to God to get stuff. A Christian says, oh, Father, I'm not worthy. I come to you on the basis of Christ's death. I come to you as a needy child who's been accepted by you. I come to you because I want a relationship with you. I come to you because I've been accepted. I come to you because you're the gift that I want. Well, these are two totally different paradigms. Jesus is not telling us to not ask for things in verse 8. That's not what he's saying. In a few verses, he tells us to ask for our daily bread. He's not talking about whether to ask. He's talking about how to ask. We ask as a child. So friend, is your prayer life boring, sterile, impersonal? Is it business-like? Or is it a conversation with your father? Of course, some of our families are challenging. We've had or have imperfect fathers. There's brokenness. 
and pain. Maybe it's hard for you to consider God as your father because your earthly fathers hurt you so badly. If that's you, I'm sorry. That is not the way it's supposed to be. You don't know what it looks like to have a loving earthly father. Well, for you, God is the perfect father you've never had and always longed for. Some of us have a loving father. I have a kind father who always hugs me, always tells me that he loves me. For me, that's a small glimpse, a small type, a small taste of my father in heaven. If you've had or have a good earthly father, your father is a small glimpse of an even greater and better father. See, to be a Christian means to be adopted by the greatest father. A great father cares for his child and will do anything for them. I remember the time a few years ago when my oldest son, Judson, was really, really sick. It's right before Christmas. The doctors had no idea what was wrong with him. He had a high fever. He wouldn't eat or drink. And we were there in the hospital for days. The doctors didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to do except to keep the IVs going into him so that he would stay hydrated. It was agonizing for us. We were begging the doctors to hurry up and to do something, to figure something out. We were praying. We were holding Judson. We were hugging him. I mean, in that moment, when your child is hurting like that, there's nothing else you can think about. You do whatever you can to care for that child. And I'm just an earthly father. I mean, think about our perfect heavenly father. He cares about all of us in our pain. Regardless of what sorrow you are facing, what grief, what pain you are going through right now, I want you to know, brother and sister, our Father sees. He sees. He sees and He knows. He cares for all of us in our pain. So here's how you improve your prayer life not by trying to pray harder but by saturating yourself with the fact that you've been adopted into God's family. That through Christ's death, through the depth of the Father's love for us and sending his one and only Son, through crushing him instead of crushing us, we are God's children. In all of Jesus' prayers, if you look through the Gospels, Jesus addresses God the Father as Father, except once. except there when Jesus lay on the cross. That's the one exception. When he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Didn't call him father in that instance. Why? Well, because it was the only time Jesus wasn't being treated as a son. The relationship with the father was temporarily broken. Jesus was separated from the father so that you and I could come to the father as our father. Because of Jesus' death, we can now go to the father for anything, anywhere, all the time. This is what fuels our prayer lives. Now, Redeemer Church, are you going to your father in heaven? Are you going to him like a child? He's our Father. He's our Father in heaven. You notice that in verse 9. Jesus is not merely telling us there the Father's location, 
but he's telling us of the Father's power, that the Father is personal to us, but he's also the Father in heaven. He's transcendent. He's in heaven, and he's over heaven. He's in control over everything, presiding over the heavens and the earth. As a father, he cares for our needs, but he's also all-powerful and majestic. He's the king of kings. He's holy. He's perfect. He rules, and he reigns over all. He's far above us, and at the same time, he's ready to come help us. He holds the whole world in his hands, and yet he holds your very life in his hands too. He knit us together in our mother's womb, and he can raise us from the dead. He's a personal God, but he's not a weak father. He's in heaven ruling and reigning over all. He's a father, and he's in heaven, but he's also our father who is in heaven. Notice that Jesus says that. He's our father in heaven. Jesus doesn't teach us to pray to my father, but our father in heaven. We belong to the family of God. And we have brothers and sisters in Christ. This means that our brothers and sisters are also children of the father. Last week, my fellow elder Daniel Mwundu preached about us being one body. One of the reasons we're one body is because we have one Father in heaven. So how can we not love one another and pray for one another and hope the best for one another? I mean, this truth kills envy. It squashes any celebration we might consider when our brother or sister stumbles. It kills gossip and slander. How dare we talk negative things about someone behind their back when they are a fellow child of God? Instead, we pray success for our brothers and sisters. And so, Redeemer, how is your praying for your enemies going? Those who've hurt you. You're praying for those who've hurt you. It's been 21 days since I laid out that challenge for you back in Matthew chapter 5, that for 30 days we would pray for those who've hurt us, those who we've hurt, those who we are in perhaps unreconciled relationships, maybe those you'd even call an enemy. I've kept it going. It's been difficult. But one of the biggest things I've noticed in my own prayers for those folks is that I've been convicted of my own hypocrisy. I begin to notice as I pray that I've noticed the speck in my brother's eyes and I've failed to see that log that is in my own eyes. A few of the people I'm praying for are fellow Christians. These are my brothers in Christ. How can I be bitter or angry with them? We have the same Father in heaven. We have the same Savior, Jesus, God in the flesh, who died for us. We have the same spirit that resides in our hearts. Well, friends, we pray to our Father in heaven in the fellowship of the saints. We pray for one another. And on that note, I just want to tell you, church, that I've been so encouraged by you, been encouraged by my fellow brothers in Christ. Many of you have gone to our Father in heaven this week for me. Uh, last Friday night, some of you know this, but I was at the Dubai Tennis Stadium with my good friend Jimmy, and we were watching an amazing tennis match. But when I got up to walk, a security guard had forgotten to put up a chain 
that was on the ground, and the ground was already slippery. The chain was slippery, and as I walked by, I slipped on the slippery chain on the slippery ground, and I fell forward on my left arm. It was terrible, terrible pain. The pain was excruciating. Well, for those of you who don't know, I have a terrible nerve disorder in both of my arms. I have burning pain 100% of the time. I'm almost completely disabled. I can't drive, put on my seatbelt. I can't get dressed. I can't open doors. I can't even shake hands, which, to be honest, is a problem because for many of us, those are really just the two main requirements of pastors, right? To preach sermons and to shake hands. And I'm unable to do the latter. Well, this week was difficult. A fall like that heightens the pain astronomically. And my left arm was really useless. The pain was high. And Mildred, our deaconess of member care, asked me if she could tell some people about my fall. And I said, oh, sure, that, that's fine. But I had no idea what that actually meant. Because I think Mildred talked to almost everybody on the face of the planet Earth about my fall. And what ensued was an avalanche of love and support and prayer that I never expected. Message after message and phone calls of people praying for me and asking how I'm doing. I was overwhelmed. I could hardly handle it. And there's so many hard things about this week, including the fall. And to know that so many of you were praying for me was unbelievable. And it was surprising But in God's kindness, my pain actually subsided in ways that were unexpected. A fall like that would have normally left me far more depressed and anxious and in far more pain uh, than what happened this very week. And my only explanation is that God moves through the prayers of his people. We know he does. He is sovereignly ordained to move through the prayers of his people. And so I just want to tell you, church, I love you. I'm so grateful for you. I love you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Please keep praying for me. Please keep asking our Father in heaven to heal me. I know he can do it. Redeemer Church, let's be a people of prayer. Let's pray for ourselves and let's pray for each other. And so many of us are hurting right now. Go to our Father. Go to him as Father. He loves you. Life will overwhelm us at times. I know many of you are facing everyday stresses. Some of you, great financial issues. Many of you need jobs desperately. Some of you are stuck here and can't leave. Some of you can't go home because of persecution. Some are facing deep physical trials. Some of you are in pain even sitting here. Some of you are in emotional distress. Your anxiety overwhelms you. Depression just consumes you. Some of you have been hurt, been abused. Some of you have been slandered. Some of you hardly got out of bed this morning to make it here today. Some of you are mourning others' sin. Oh, friend, we grieve these things. We grieve these things together. I encourage you to grieve, but friends, we grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope. We grieve as those who have hope because remember, you have a Father in heaven. Remember, we have a father in heaven who is a million times better than the best human father. He is our father, and we have complete and utter access to him. I I told you a couple weeks ago that I had the privilege of meeting the crown prince of Fujera. Many of you remember me sharing that perhaps three weeks ago. It was a wonderful meeting. We had a, a great occasion to sit with the prince to thank him for 
the land and the building that we hope to see built in Frigera for the evangelical church there. But then a little over a week ago, we got another call. This time it was to meet the father, to meet his highness, to meet his highness, Sheikh Hamad bin Mohammed al-Sharqi. And we were so excited. Two royal visits in two weeks. I think that's a world record, at least for me. And it was unbelievable. We were excited. So we got dressed up and we drove to Frigera to the royal palace. But let me tell you how all this came together. Let me take a couple steps back. Pastor Steve there in Frigera has been as I've told you, dozens and dozens of visits to the palace, to the ruler's court, asking for land, asking for a building, asking for permission to meet publicly. And in order to meet publicly, Steve said he had to put a request in for land and for a building. So he's done that. But weeks go by, months go by, and nothing is happening. The court accepted it. But Steve felt like there was lots of uncertainty as to whether his highness had even read the request. So Steve knew of one church member who actually worked in the ruler's court. And so he asked her if there was any way she could check in with the crown prince. Well, she was really nervous about speaking up, but she said, okay, pastor, let me, let me see what I can do. An opportunity arose in passing for her to mention it to the crown prince. She mentioned the letter and the prince asked about it. And so she got the photo of the letter from Pastor Stephen. She actually showed it to the prince. And the prince, now get this, the son, he asked her for the letter. And the son WhatsApped the photo of the letter to his father, the ruler of Frigera. And the dad responds to the son that he had not seen the letter before. And he takes the request and says he'll look into it. A week later, just seven days Later, We've been trying for this for years and years. Seven days later, we were given a map with a plot of land picked out for the church. We had a meeting with the engineer. We met with the crown prince, and we found ourselves sitting in front of his highness, thanking him for this land and future building. And his only response was that of excitement, talking to his engineer and asking him when this thing is going to get built. He was a kind and extraordinarily joyful person. And as I've thought about this over the past week, I can't get over how all of this came together. There's nothing Steve could do to get access to the Father. He tried and he tried and he tried for months and even years. But the son had access to the Father. The crown prince could. He had unlimited access to his father as the king's child. He put in one WhatsApp request to the father, and that was it. Well, friends, because of Jesus Christ, we have a direct line to God our Father 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are his children. We are sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. We have that same access to the king. We have that same access to our Father So let's talk to him. Let's be in a relationship with him. Cast your cares on him. Converse with him. Share your heart with him. Worship him. Go to him. He loves you. And he wants to be in a relationship with you. We have full and unlimited access to our Father in heaven. And so Redeemer Church... 
pray to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your love for us. While we were still sinners, you sent your one and only Son to live and to die for us. Your love is vast beyond all measure. Would our hearts be warmed by this truth? And would our congregation be a people of prayer? Would we be a people of prayer because we're a people who love being with you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.